If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. The Speech Uncensored podcast is a place where we like to have challenging conversations, where we like to explore areas for improved growth and development. And I think this week's episode and next week's uh, part two episode um, do just that. We're going to take an inside look at racism and discrimination in the speech and language pathology field. I'm honored to have guests Mary Louise Nichols and Stephanie O'Silas on the podcast today on the topic of bringing awareness to racial barriers in speech pathology. Stephanie and Mary Louise are here to talk about why it's important and relevant to address race and racism in our field. They're going to share their encounters with racism in the classroom and the workplace. And we're going to wrap up by talking about steps that um, each of us need to take to change this um, workplace status quo, the systemic racism. We all have a role to play and we all can make changes um, that will eliminate this. Let's get to it. Let's hear from Stephanie and Mary Louise. My name is Leanne Porter. I'm your host, and this is the Speech Uncensored Podcast. All right, welcome to today's episode. I'm really excited. I've got two guests today. I'm welcoming Mary Louise Nichols back, and I'm joined by Stephanie Osilas. So welcome, ladies. Pleasure to have you. Hi, thank you. It's good to be here. Awesome. All right, so let's start um, getting to know each of you a little bit better. So Mary Louise, um, I had you on the podcast earlier to talk about the work that you do, and I really enjoyed that. Um, But go ahead and refresh our folks' memories with what it is that you do and how you practice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I am Mary Louise Nichols. I am a speech and language pathologist um, in adult acute care. Um, That's where I currently work. Um, I've also worked in inpatient rehab, so I've kind of toggled back and forth between inpatient rehab and acute care, but I'm currently in acute care, um, in Houston, Texas, uh, and I just love working with adults. I love mentoring students, um, and I am really passionate about increasing diversity in our field. So those are the big things that I love talking about. (laughs) Excellent. Excellent. All right, Stephanie, this is my first time getting to meet you. Welcome. I love your voice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, same here. I am a medical speech language pathologist too, and business development expert um, at the moment. I'm a chief executive officer of Champion Rehabilitation, which is a company that I founded here in Dallas, Texas. So with that being said, the company it specializes in direct bill outpatient services, as well as high volume managed uh, contracted services. And we provide interdisciplinary, I mean, PT, ST, OT, uh, we provide it all. Uh, we, most of my work that I do on a daily is really uh, partnering with various organizations um, 
local government, you name it. Um, a lot of what I do, um, my I always like to say that my business as well is really meant for a lot of SLPs, uh, the staff members, um, because I do have a passion to mentor as well. Um, right now, I'm actually on the business management committee as part of uh, the Texas Speech and Hearing Association. Um, and we do a lot of work that really caters to this niche as well in business management. I'm really passionate about business management, really passionate about leadership, anything, um, and really um, a, acute care um, and a lot of specialized services in dysphagia management, as well as post-stroke neuro rehab. That's awesome. Okay. So you have a lot of free time is what I'm hearing. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. <laughs> a lot Whatever. of time to plan and think. <laughs> well, I see that we have Texas strongly represented today. I'm sure everyone who's listening who's from Texas is getting rowdy right now. <laughs> like, there's so much Texas pride. I don't yes. understand it, but that's because I'm not from Texas. <laughs> I didn't get it either, to be honest. I'm from Maryland, the Washington, D.C., Maryland area, and I didn't get it either. <laughs> Do you Most get of it, it is out of pure jealousy. <laughs> love it, love it. All right, well, let's open up with the beginning. So we want to start by laying the foundation and kind of defining terms so that we're all operating under kind of the same understanding of when we say a term, like what we mean by that. So let's begin. You know, we're talking about racism, bias, and discrimination in the SLP field. So we're just really narrowing it down to our experiences as practicing clinicians and the experiences of our clients and patients. Um, so who'd like to take over? I'll just go ahead and uh, first say uh, thank you, Leanne, for, for giving us this platform to speak. I think this is such an important topic that needs to be discussed. Um, and I think it's important that we continue talking about this topic. I know there was a, a, you know, a big push to have these conversations um, earlier in the year. Um, and I know ASHA took part in those conversations, National Black Association of Speech, Language, and Hearing took part in those conversations. Our state organizations took part in those conversations. Um, but I don't want this topic to die. Um, and I know that that happens a lot, is that we get riled up about these issues and this topic, and then it dies, and there's no um, there's no follow-through, um, and, and, and we forget about it until the next time it becomes a hot topic. And so I don't want this to be a hot topic. I want it to be um, a goal uh, for change. I want people to listen to this and I, I want people to be able to say, these are the things that uh, we need to, to change in our field. And so I just thank you so much for giving us this platform and uh, thank you to everyone who's listening. Um, so with that aside, um, we, uh, quite frankly, uh, we have a diversity issue in our field. Um, we have a, a race issue in our field, uh, discrimination and bias issue in our field, and it, it, it needs to be addressed. Um, and I think so often we focus on the numbers. We've got, I believe it's 8% of our field um, is uh, part of a minority ethnic or racial group. And we, we know these numbers and we want to change them. But I think 
sometimes we have to dig down deep and we have to look at the root causes. So diversity is not really what we're, diversity really isn't our, our goal. Our goal is to look at the root cause of what is causing the lack of diversity and change that. And then diversity will be our out, diversity will be the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think today um, I and Stephanie, Stephanie and I um, want to, <laughs> so I'm a speech pathologist. So I don't want to mess that up. Um, Stephanie and I want to talk about what are the root causes and how we can, um, how we can expand this 8%. Yeah. And I will also ask listeners to get, um, be, give us 30 minutes of you being comfortable while we talk about this and just open. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think as I've been progressing through my SLP career and doing this podcast, I've had such interesting conversations with people who specialize in a lot of different areas in our field. And one of the conversations I had was with um, a professor who teaches on end of life care. And, you know, she has this big push, like get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And we, we hear that in other areas, you know, like stepping into spaces uh, where we don't feel confident in our skills that makes us feel uncomfortable. Like this is another area where we don't know enough and then we feel uncomfortable because we don't feel confident in that area. So yeah, let's like make a pledge to be uncomfortable for a little bit so that we can come through on the other side with a clear understanding. And I also think that I also think that um, I've heard, you know, in some in some groups and in some forums, people are saying, you know, why are we still talking about this? Like, I I really don't think that this is a a big issue. Um, And then you've got some people who are totally on board and understand what's going on. And so you've got our field is kind of divided where people who totally get it and then people who don't get it at all. And so for those who don't get it at all, we're still talking about it because it's still an issue. Um, and then for the people who do get it, we, we thank you. And that that's great. And that's amazing. And we thank you for being um, supporters and allies of this, you know, this cause. Um, but it needs to be discussed more. Um, because there's a large group of people who still don't understand. They don't understand why ASHA issued a statement, why ASHA had to reissue a statement, why Mbosla exists, why you have SLPs who feel, you know, like they don't have a place in this field. There are people who really don't get it and think, that this is just hot air that all of these organizations are blowing. And so um, I don't know if my goal is to necessarily change their mind um, because some people have their mind made up of how they're going to think regardless. But um, I I do think if I can, if I can share my story and if other people can share their stories that uh, maybe someone out there will kind of get a better idea of the issues that are going on in this field and why we have such a homogenous group of SLPs in our field. Mm -hmm. I think it takes a moment for someone to step outside of, of their perspective and of how they've been experiencing the world and to recognize that somebody else can experience the world in a very different way. And when they're telling you about that, you can accept that as their truth and recognize that that's how they're experiencing the world. Yeah. And then hear them when they say that. And then what kind of changes can you make so that we're experiencing a more similar world? Like I see, I see simplicity sometimes where people want to not, I guess. I agree. 
You know, I think that Mary Louise and I, what we bring to the table today, um, you know, we're bringing a unique perspective even from what it looks like in um, hospitals, in hospital settings, you know, a very niche environment within the field. Um, and we're going to speak to some of that today. So I'm, I'm really happy to share some of that. Yes. Yes. So are we ready to get into, I'm kind of like reviewing our questions and yeah. And I feel like we're, we're touching on them, but I want to make sure that we've talked about why it's important and why it's relevant to address race and racism in our field, Mm -hmm. like more clearly than you already have. It's important to, or relevant to address race and racism, discrimination, bias in our field. I think we first have to acknowledge how our history of race relations have really, um, you know, been soured by so many tense events that have happened in the past. For a lot of us, um, a lot of us did not even exist during that time, but we still have to acknowledge that this sour history that we're uh, living, we're living under this context. And um, I think a second thing we need to acknowledge are systematic problems that prevent access to opportunities. Why is it important to address it? Because if we don't address it, if we're not even aware, it's going to keep happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're going to see a lot of what you saw around um, the past few months. Um, When it comes to, I'll give you some specific examples um, for the listeners that may have had a question being, well, you know, what's an example? Somebody out there is probably asking, give me an example. And when I say systematic, you know, a lot of things systematic, these are things beyond our control. For instance, in Texas here, we have a lot of tollways. And at there there are points at each point in a in the tollway, as you keep going further and further, there are there are points where you're being charged. So when you think of a premier hospital, for instance, that um, is on the north, the, the northmost part of town. Imagine somebody that really wants to get that fees training in that particular hospital. It's far and traveling there might mean them accumulating a bill of almost $14 or more a day plus parking fees. What happens, the outcome of that is they're now barred from an opportunity. That's nobody's fault, right? But it is systematic. And And unfortunately, these systematic elements tend to um, omit people from accessing these um, certain experiences in our field. That's one. Um, Another, I I do want to point out um, what comes to mind when I think of this as well, as far as systematic problems, I think of HBCUs, um, HBCUs that uh, HBCU stands for historically black colleges. Uh, So. When you think of HBCUs, um, a lot of them do have speech, speech language pathology programs as well. And think of access to quality placements uh, when you're in the middle of more visible, more endowed, more recognized programs. Um, I will provide an example. When I went to MGH, um, that's Massachusetts General Hospital um, Institute of Health Professions in Boston, Massachusetts, Uh, I went there for graduate school and I was very lucky. Uh, We had such an established presence and a large local alumni scattering. Um, In the medical world, most medical sites for placements, they preferred our 
are, they preferred us. Um, Emerson, Boston University, similarly, they had um, their own sites that kind of preferred them. But um, those th the three schools were pretty much the prime competitors. And if you know how, if you know the Boston landscape, that's an area that's saturated with universities. And so think about an HBCU in that area that's trying to compete with these quality placements. Um, those three schools that I mentioned combined have such a widespread alumni network um, that are in a lot of the quality, the more quality placements uh, that can even assist. They're in positions of influence that and they can assist in helping uh, their, um, their fellow classmates get placements and so forth. So um, I, I feel like an HBCU positioned in such a community to no fault of their own, you know, what happens is they, in an environment like that, they can falter with such an arrangement and not being able to provide quality placements, quality rigorous placements, especially hospital placements for uh, their students. So these are two examples that I'm, I'm pinpointing to just kind of really help listeners understand some systematic things that are just happening. And there, sometimes they are out of our control, but what is our control is our awareness, is our ability to listen and to understand and to be more conscious when you are in a decision-making position. So these are why, these are reasons why it's important to address topics such as this. Yeah. And, and then because of that, as Stephanie was saying, because of those issues that Stephanie pointed out, what happens is as a result, you end up with a very homogenous field and we are not serving a homogenous population. Our, our client and our uh, patient population is not homogenous. Um, and so what happens is you get a field that um, not only is happens to be racially similar, but is also uh, culturally similar. Um, and when you are serving populations that are not culturally sim similar, that, that, becomes an issue and then we have a schism and and we're not connecting with our, our our patients and our clients like we should and that becomes a problem and so just to add to what stephanie was saying this is why this is such a relevant issue again how long have we been talking about these numbers how long have we been talking about diversity and then we have people you know trying to increase their the number of students uh from racially and ethnically diverse backgrounds, but we're just increasing the numbers. We are not, we're not actually getting to the root of the problem of the systemic issues that are happening. Um, and so that's why it's relevant. That's how we can improve our field. That's how we can increase the diversity in our field, because if it remains like this, um, where, you know, we don't have a diverse we don't have a diverse field. I think it, I think it will become an issue. I think we will have people, I think it will affect the outlook of our profession. And I think it will affect the way we serve our patients in our profession. Um, and so I think it's very important that we address this and that we, um, and that we make some changes. Yes. So can we talk a little bit about how this level of racism and is affecting the clinicians and the providers in our field. Yeah. So I, I think it's a, it's a twofold issue. 
Um, I think one way it's affecting our clients is that, well, you've got clients who aren't, a lot of clients like their providers to look like them. That's one thing. Um, and so when, I mean, when I think about even my blog, I run a, I run a blog, um, that focuses on, you know, young minorities in the field and just telling my story of being a young minority in the field and just trying to highlight and engage other minorities, young minorities in our field. And so at least once or twice a week, I get someone reaching out to me who's like, you know, I have a a child or a grandchild, or I have a speech issue, um, speech and language or swallowing issue. And I Googled black speech therapist and your name came up. I've been looking for a black speech therapist. And so this person has not been receiving services. They haven't been, you know, they haven't reached out to their doctor or anyone else. They Googled black speech therapist. And when they don't see anyone, that's discouraging to them. Um, And when they see me, they reach out to me and I may not be able to help them, but I can put them in contact with someone who can help them. And so some people are, some, some patients and clients are just simply looking for a provider that looks like them. That's human nature. The other thing is that when we don't understand someone's culture um, and we don't understand their background, that takes away from the quality service that we are able to provide. Um, And so for example, there are some cultures that I'm just not very familiar with. And I know that I cannot provide the best service that I can't provide the best service that that patient needs. I can do my best. And that's not to say that my best is inadequate, that for me to do my best is inadequate, but it is not, it's not necessarily the best service out there. Someone who is from that patient's culture, from their background, understands their culture, understands their ethnicity, could help them so much better. And not necessarily from a clinical point of view, but uh, just maybe from an interpersonal uh, point of view. Um, so we are not always giving our clients the best the the best service and treatment. Sometimes because we don't know, we don't know what we don't know, but sometimes it's because we um, don't don't care to know. I mean, yeah. when, we, when we look at some issues of like difference versus disorder, some people really don't care about difference versus uh, versus disorder. They don't care to learn more. They think it's rubbish and they blow it off. And then so then you have people who are not providing um, the best service possible because they don't understand the the ethnic and racial and cultural background of their clients. So that's how it's affecting clients. That's one portion. The other portion is how is it affecting our clinicians? Well, it's affecting our clinicians before they even come, before they even become clinicians. You know, it's affecting them in academia. They are, you know, facing biases, facing microaggressions where they don't feel wanted or welcomed in their programs and they're leaving. Um, I mean, I don't know the numbers, but I'd be curious to see what the attrition rate is for minorities in speech and language programs at the undergraduate level, especially, um, because I've heard a lot about weeding out programs where we're weeding out these students, you know, to get that group that these professors want. They're they're pushing these students out, telling them they, they, that you don't belong in this program. When are you going to quit? Um, those are things that I've heard. And so we're, we're, we're roadblocking these students before they even get to graduate programs. And then when you get to graduate programs, you have all types of microaggressions um, that, that students are facing where they're not feeling welcomed. Um, we don't 
we probably don't see the attrition rate because I mean, once you're, once you're in a graduate program, you're, you're pretty committed, but think of the toll that that takes on your self-esteem when you are in your graduate program, you've selected this as your career, you pay big bucks to be here and you're facing roadblocks every step of the way. Again, like Stephanie said, some things that are even out of your control, like your attitude or your facial expressions or the way you talk or the way you dress, that makes you not want to be there. Then you talk about when you actually start your career, okay? When you're, you you get that job or you get that externship or that, that clinic placement, um, and then you're facing more microaggressions in the workplace. You know, that's why we have some clinicians who are transitioning out of the field. That's why we have some clinicians who um, their professional growth is being stunted as far as leadership opportunities. They don't feel empowered to take on more or maybe they do feel empowered to take on more and no one is selecting them or choosing them or giving them the opportunities. And so then we have this poor clinician population, clinicians who don't want to be here, clinicians who feel like they're not welcomed here, clinicians who don't feel empowered to go above and beyond and do their best in this profession. And so what happens is you end up with a lackluster profession lackluster professionals, as well as lackluster service to your clients. And so that's why we have to look at both sides and how this issue is is affecting both clients and clinicians. Correct. And I would even add like even some clinicians that feel like they can thrive in, um, in isolation almost, you know, like a lot when you say leaving the field, sometimes leaving the field doesn't even need to look like um, going and going into a whole nother profession, it could really look like, you know what, I'm switching, I'm going to home health where I don't have to put up with all of this, or I'm switching, I'm going to just do PRN. That's what I mean when I say sometimes just thriving in isolation, but I agree with you on the matter of, um, sometimes you, what the outcome is a very lackluster part of a lackluster, uninspired type of therapist that, that is the outcome. Um, I mean, it's so important to when we, you know, all this, when we talk about mental health, even, you know, this is a prime, it's, it's primely at play because it's important to realize how exhausting the experience can be for someone that's from an underrepresented group. Um, and by exhausting, you know, ima- just imagine entering your every day, you're entering into predominantly white spaces, for instance, and you're seeing, you're being exposed, either you're seeing or you're directly experiencing um, or indirectly experiencing microaggressions, biases. Sometimes it doesn't even need to just happen to you. You might see it happen to other, other colleagues in your workplace. You know, for instance, for most, for most Black SLPs in hospitals, we're showing up every day with with the the re- the realization that most of the people that look like me are probably going to be in the kitchen are probably going to be um the janitors or are probably going to be doing a lot of the skilled labor jobs within the hospital you know these seeing this sometimes can be exhausting it can also feel very degrading at the same time um through again sometimes through no fault of of mine or through no fault of, of my SLP supervisor or my SLP colleague, but this is the context at play. This is the context. And we just really have to acknowledge this contract, this context. It can, to some degree, 
amount in stress, amount in anxieties, amount in trauma. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to ignore the mental health aspect. You know, there even may be, I would even say one of your listeners could be a student that would disagree with Mary Louise to say, well, I, you know, I went through my grad program and I never experienced that kind of, um, that kind of issue, but leave your grad program and go to the workforce. Either way, no, <laughs> there's, there's no escaping it. with the current state of affairs as things are today. There's no escaping it. If you didn't face it in grad school, you're going to face it in the workforce. Yeah. That, that's so true. So kind of what Stephanie was saying, um, I guess I'll just jump in and kind of talk about how I got here, my journey here um, to, to speech, to becoming a speech pathologist, because um, Stephanie kind of gave me the perfect segue. And uh, if anyone, you know, if you all follow my blog, I've talked about it on my blog and kind of how I became a speech therapist and some of the barriers that I faced. But, you know, overall, generally speaking, I think I've had a pretty smooth ride. I, you know, I'm very type A. I do everything I'm supposed to do. And I once, there was a part of me that once believed, you know, if I do everything right, if I get straight A's, if I am the model student, if I'm the model perfect person, I'll get through this. Like it's, it's not a big deal. I'm, you know, I worked hard. I work really hard. So I believed, you know, if I did everything right, that I wouldn't face these microaggressions and the the biases and the discrimination. Um, and, and, you know, looking back compared to some of my colleagues, I've, I've had a pretty, I had, I've had a pretty smooth ride. I, I can't lie. I went to an HBCU for undergrad. Um, and then I went to a predominantly white school um, for graduate school, and I loved my uh, graduate school. I had so much support. Um, I would not choose another graduate school. My professor, my professors were wonderful. Um, but when I was applying to graduate school, I had a black professor who was a speech and language pathologist, and she worked at another school, um, and she guided me through the process. And I remember I had decided I wanted to go into speech pathology, and she was helping me through the process, and I submitted a list to her of all the graduate schools that I wanted to apply to, um, and she had worked for some very prestigious programs, um, some top programs in the country. And so she was very familiar with the programs. And so I submitted her a list of all the programs that I wanted to apply to. And she went through the list and she just started crossing off names. And she was like, you don't want to go there. You don't want to go there. I wouldn't wow. recommend that you go there. And I couldn't believe it. And these were like top schools because that's, that's where I was. I, that's the type of person I am. I've set my sights high and she just went through with the red pen and said, nope, you don't want to go there. No, you don't want to go there. And I couldn't believe it. And she said, you're not going to get the support that you need as a black student at these schools. And I mean, my jaw hit the floor. I couldn't believe it. Um, and looking back, I see that she was right. And I'm glad that she, um, gave me the foresight to shift and, um, you know, the graduate school that I went to was perfect for me. Absolutely perfect. Um, I had wonderful, wonderful professors, but you know, that didn't prevent me from experiencing some microaggressions during graduate school. I was in a very rural town in the Midwest. And so, you know, my very first day at, when I was at, in grad school, I had a professor who was wonderful. Um, she went to bat for me so many times and she pulled me aside on my very first day and she said, you know, 
I just want to let you know, there are no black people here. And I was like, yeah, I know. And she was like, I just want to let you know, I want to make you aware because it, there may be some struggles. And she was very upfront with me. And at first I was a little taken aback um, because I'm thinking, I don't know this, this lady at all, but she was very frank with me. And um, she looked out for me. Um, and she went to bat for me a couple of times. And, and, and those are, these are the allies that our students need. But what's disappointing is that we're even having to have these conversations with our students that a student can bring to you a list of schools that they want to attend. And someone is saying, "Mm -mm, no, you're not going to get the support you need there. That's problematic. On my first day, when a professor's pulling me to uh, to the side saying, hey, you know, like, we don't have any Black people here, like, none in our program, very few on this campus, very few in this city, and I just want to prepare you, you know, for what you might experience. That's that's kind of sad that we're having to have these conversations this day and age. And, you know, I, I went through grad school and, you know, not to say that I didn't have any bumps along the road, but I had a really great experience. And then I got into the real world and, and it was, it was difficult um, because again, I kind of had this smooth experience through grad school and then I got into the real world and I faced a ton of, of just microaggressions and biases and I was not prepared at all. Um, I thought if I get through grad school, this will, you know, I, I will, I will have made it, you know, grad school will be the hardest part. When I leave grad school, there will be so many other black SLPs. There will be a, a group of diverse SLPs. I just have to get through grad school. Um, and I did. And when I got out of grad school, I realized that I had it easy in grad school. It was when I started working was when things got challenging. You know, I'll go ahead and 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 let Stephanie tell a little bit of her story. I'll stop there. But yeah, you know, Mary Louise, much like yourself, you know, we share so many parallel experiences. A lot of my um, my first entry into the field really began with my one of my internships at the National Institutes of Health. Um, I was working with Beth Solomon, and she was very supportive. It was a highly supportive environment um, for me. While in undergrad, I I also had some my advisor as well as some faculty members that were also that were that were very much supportive of me in keeping going. However, I did see other students that were humiliated publicly. You know, we even had a visiting professor from Germany who humiliated one of my classmates. It was, it wasn't even funny. You know, when there was one professor in undergrad that I did not receive support from, um, but I, I would describe that experience more being, being tied to my really not understanding intro to CSD in the way that it was delivered to me. (laughs) Cause we just, the way that it was delivered was just very, um, it wasn't very a very interactive course. It was a lot of just copy and paste. Um, so I think she walked away with that impression of my not understanding to be completely different as me being un- incapable of excelling or, or or thriving in this field. Again, just like Mary Louise, when I went to grad graduate school, all things were nice and fine. You know, obviously, um, I was one of five persons of color in my class. My advisor was quite supportive. It really wasn't until I um, entered my, my one of my first uh, tough acute care 
um, tough. It was a tough acute care placement, very rigorous. And, you know, this placement experience, it being so demanding, you know, when I first entered that acute care, I was enthralled, you know, bells and whistles everywhere. You have people rounding. I mean, the doctors are very serious the way they're responding to codes. For, for someone that has never really been in the hospital in that capacity, this was very, um, I was enthralled. The experience was very boots on the ground. I always felt very dutiful and I was, I, I was a committed placement student. Um, you know, I, somehow, some way there was a breakdown in, um, in just my, my supervisor, my supervisor relationship. There was a breakdown somewhere and it began from the very first impressions. Obviously this is a hospital environment. I felt more, I felt more comfortable wearing scrubs. I did, but somehow scrubs were not allowed as part of this placement. And so I was, um, we, we wore a business casual dress code and in essence, I was matching the dress of my supervisor. I just kind of monkey see monkey do just kind of, you know, watched and, and learned from her. Um, but I will say that somehow within the first month of my placement, my supervisor walked away with the, with the impression of me being too casual, unserious, not interested. I just don't know how those adjectives became a part of her profiling me. I, I, till this day, I don't know how, how that, how that happened, you know, and honestly speaking, I just, I always wonder, it's always a question, if I were in different skin, would I have been given the benefit of the doubt? Would I have been perceived differently? It's it's always a question. I do not think that her overall impression of me ever recovered from that first impression because the rest of my experience involved me working so hard, putting in 110% to make sure that I understood medical terminology and abbreviations, differential diagnosis, journal reviews, and so much more. My roommates could tell you what I looked like when I came home each day. <laughs> mm-hmm. However, um, you know, me and my supervisor, we had many dialogues, um, you know, and I expressed this, you know, where I felt like I was being judged too harshly. It was only my first month. <laughs> and, you know, harsh things would also come out of her mouth. You know, it was weird because after being very harsh with her words or maybe with her actions, she would bring me like brioche treats. Uh, um, one day, or she'll bring me cupcakes another day, or just buy me a parting gift. It was a very weird um, dynamic. The relationship was confusing. And I, and I would even say borderline abusive almost, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I, I felt very unsupported. I, um, I felt also underestimated, you know, Mm -hmm. after an experience that was less than six months, um, you know, I believe this is why, um, I, I feel like that experience for me, and this go, this ties into just me being resilient. I feel like my resilience has shown today where I've committed to the acute care environment. And it's why I've chosen to specialize and it's why I continue to thrive because I personally derive joy and satisfaction in the daily reminder that yes, I'm killing it in acute care and I'm doing it very well unlike what was projected for me initially. So, I mean, fast forward to today, I, like Mary Louise, I would describe my my working experience. You know, I, I have been subject to the microaggressions, but I've seen it happen to others more. 
Um, you know, and I think that we should be cautious of how we even coach students in a three to six month uh, placement, especially in the acute care. I don't think that acute care is an environment that can be mastered in three months. Um, I honestly, I honestly had to touch a hundred necks in order to tell the difference between fibrosis and laryngeal elevation. I do feel like more constructive criticisms are questions such as, does my student know know where to find the information? Has my student mastered high frequency medical terminologies and um, the uh, bedside swallowing evaluation, the procedures? You know, can my student verbalize and identify VP shunt procedures, stroke clinical pathways, different breathing devices, uh, traits, and so forth? I think those are more constructive ways to critique whether or not your student is benefiting from your instruction, um, as opposed to making judgments about, oh, you know, this person appears unapproachable, this person appears unserious, this person um, is casual, lazy, and, and, and all the other slew of adjectives that somehow could be associated with, you know, a person that looks like me. Mm-hmm. I... So, Stephanie, you bring up a great point, which kind of, again, segues me into, um, you know, I think one thing is that people need to understand the historical context of race and discrimination in our field. And so I think uh, acute care and medical settings um, often highlight you know, racial issues and biases in our profession. Because when you look historically at um, the medical field, it has often been considered um, kind of like a a peak profession. You think of like the most skilled and intelligent people working in medical settings. Um, Everyone wants to get there because it is challenging historically, you know, you have your doctors and your nurses and your surgeons and all of these people work there. And so it's this um, coveted position for only the most intelligent, the best and the brightest go into hospitals, go into the medical setting. And then, so that's historically what it has been. And it has um, particularly been reserved for white people. I mean, when I think back, uh, my grandma, she was a nurse, you know, during a time where you didn't see a lot of black nurses. I've spoken about this on my blog, you know, as well. And she worked in a segregated hospital. This is my grandma, not, not that long ago, you know, she worked in a segregated hospital, um, you know, where she can tell you stories of where she had white patients who would say, I don't want you touching me. I don't want you, I don't want you to be my nurse. So that's how the medical field started. Um, That is the historical context of the medical field. Also historically, the medical field has disenfranchised black people. You know, when we think of like the Tuskegee experiment, when we think of, you know, um, sterilization of black women, when we think about, um, you know, Henrietta Lacks um, and cells, you know, we think of the medical field, uh, you know, disenfranchising and exploiting black people and people of color. And so that stigma still remains. And that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important that we do have a diverse group represented in acute care um, and in the medical field, because so many um, people of color, especially 
Blacks are very uh, hesitant to seek medical care because of the stigma and the his- and the history um, that surrounds uh, medicine and uh, healthcare. And so, again, going back to healthcare being this um, this coveted position for the best and the brightest, um, I think that you know, that plays a factor when we start talking about who do we put on this pathway to get to acute care? Who do we put on this pathway to rehab? Who do we put on this pathway to our outpatient clinics? Which students do we do we put on this on this pathway? And so as a result, we see a lot of students who are uh, not put on that pathway, uh, a lot of students of color um, who are not put on that pathway to healthcare positions and and medical SLP. Um, and then for the medical SLPs, uh, when when they get there, there's a lot. Uh, there are there are very many barriers that they have to jump over. A lot of hoops they have to jump through. Um, and I think Stephanie touched uh, on on some of them. I mean, some of them are just our you know just our presence. You know we. Uh, we don't have a good attitude. We're confrontational, unapproachable, unapproachable, standoffish. And so that's very frustrating. And then uh, the other part is people, you know, don't believe that we belong. They don't believe uh, that we are the speech therapist. I don't know how many times I've had to explain to people, you know, I'm the speech therapist. I'm here to do speech therapy. Um, Yes, I'm going to be the one doing your fees. Yes, I'm going to be the one doing your modified. Yes, I'm going to be doing your treatment session. Yes, I'm going to be doing your evaluation. No, I do not work for housekeeping. (laughs) I cannot tell you where you can find more cups and styrofoam plates. I do not work in the cafeteria. Again, it goes back to that history of only the best and brightest go into medicine, only the best and brightest go into healthcare. And so when we see someone who doesn't fit that mold of who we think is the best and brightest, we, you know, some people start having questions and um, they get uneasy um, and they don't feel like you're qualified enough. And so you get that from your patients, um, but then you also get that from your colleagues and your supervisors. Sometimes students of color are made to feel that, uh, they don't belong, that they are not smart enough, that this is, they're not cut out for this. If I listen to people who told me I wasn't cut out for acute care or inpatient rehab or uh, the medical setting, I, I would not be here. I would have quit a long, long time ago. Um, but it takes a sort of confidence and, a, you know, to, to pursue this. And I'm very fortunate that I have that confidence. But like Stephanie said, I've heard some horror stories there are a lot of students who are getting humiliated and, um, and, and deterred, and they don't have that confidence, uh, to, to pursue this. And so again, that's why we are seeing a homogenous, uh, profession, not only as a whole, but especially in the medical setting, um, because we have an idea of who goes to the medical setting and who doesn't. Mm -hmm. And I would even add, um, you know, that perception is reality. I don't know whose burden that is to bear, but, um, you know, for SOPs and students in hospitals, um, the benefit of the doubt is not always easily afforded to uh, persons of color. You know, if you walk slower, you, you might be perceived as casual or uncommitted to a certain environment, if you talk a certain way and so forth. You know, um, I would even like to somehow, you know, every, I think I've heard this term being passed around Karen, 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 you know, Karen culture. I personally don't like the word, but 
if I had to, it seems as though everyone understands this, a, a Karen culture, whatever Karen culture is, it seems as though everyone has a general understanding of what that is. And if I can take that example, that caring culture and kind of apply it to what it might look like, even in the workplace, you know, going back to not giving the benefit of the doubt, not choosing to have um, to resolve issues constructively with your peers. When you don't choose to take that route, what happens is or, or what's been my experience has been the copying you know, the CCing, um, writing those per my email, uh, just, you know, completely exposing that person, copying them on a series of emails. Sometimes um, I will, some one would say tattletelling. And this, and when I say that, I mean, reporting an issue to your supervisor, but you haven't even discussed your concerns first with that clinician. It could be maybe, maybe this clinic, you didn't write goals for doing um, exercises, but um, but a clinician behind you went and did exercises. It's okay to have a conversation and, and to ask questions and say, hey, I want to make sure you understood what my intentions are for this patient. You know, I, I don't know when... I don't know when we began to fear confrontation or, or, or constructive confrontation at that, but you know, if the, this caring culture that I'm describing in the workplace, if this is a result of, um, if this is a product of, you know, uh, per persons of color like myself being perceived as confrontational and unapproachable, if that is the product of, if that's the result. I think there needs to be some awareness that, you know, where, you know, when we hear Karen culture being, um, a, you know, being said for other, for other circumstances, I do think that we can also see some remnants of it in our, in the workplace, in our profession as well. Um, and hopefully by being a little bit more aware of how we can counteract that, I think that just, that, that just creates a more inclusive, a more supportive space, you know, it's important to know that um, we are not the enemy. You know, uh, SOPs that don't share your same background, they're not your enemy. Rather, in a workplace, we're all, you know, our goal is really to try and work together and to evolve from our experiences. So, Stephanie, Mary Louise, thank you so much for coming on here today and sharing your stories and bringing light to these things that, that the 92% of our field aren't exposed to, that they don't live every day with that understanding, and that hopefully your stories have shed light on this and will help us to understand what's going on, that we can start making those changes. Um, it starts with awareness. And so I'm excited that our second talk will be really unpacking that. What, what do we do now that we know? What are the changes that we need to make? So... All right. Thank you again, Stephanie and Mary Louise, so much. I appreciate your time here today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. 
And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. 